welcome to the December episode of the EVJ and Conversation podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today I'm joined by Rose Talon and Nicola Lynch to talk about antibiotic usage and check ligament desmitis. Rose Talon is an equine medicine specialist at Donington Grove Equine Hospital. And her recent paper titled Antibiotic Usage in 14 Equine Practices over a 10-year period from 2012 to 2021 can be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. Rose, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast this month. You've done a really interesting paper um, that you can find in the EVJ early view section on the website, um, looking into antibiotic usage over a 10-year period. And in your introduction, you start off with some pretty scary statistics about antibiotic resistance in the human population. So could you start off by talking us through these stats? Yes. So antimicrobial resistance is a silent killer. There was a global survey done back in 2019, which showed that there were more deaths associated with antimicrobial resistance than with HIV and malaria. It's estimated that 1.3 million people die every year directly as a result of antimicrobial resistance. So that means if we didn't have this resistance, those deaths would not occur. If we then look closer to home here in the UK, it's estimated that up to 35,000 deaths occur each year due to antimicrobial resistance, which is huge. And the worry is that these numbers will only worsen if we fail to act. What's also worrying, and something we didn't really go into in the introduction, is that many of the main pathogens responsible for these deaths in people are ones that we commonly encounter in veterinary medicine. So things like E. coli, Staph aureus, Klebsiella and Pseudomonas. Sounds, <laughs> doesn't sound great. Um, so you described um, the recording and usage of antimicrobials in different animal populations in your introduction as well. Um, so how are they surveyed? So in terms of recording, in the UK, the Veterinary Medicines Directorate, so the VMD, publishes an annual report called the VARS report, and that stands for Veterinary Antimicrobial Resistance and Sales Surveillance. And this illustrates the use of antimicrobials, mainly in food producing animals. They record this in milligrams of antimicrobial per kilogram of animal. And the report also describes usage in companion animals. But then rather confusingly, they recommend a different metric. So the defined daily dose per animal per year, which relates to the average number of days that each dog or cat in the UK will receive an antibiotic throughout the year. And this is the metric that's recommended by the European Medicines Agency, and it's considered preferable as it takes into account the length of activity for long-acting products. So, you know, we would commonly use them in dogs and cats. And then it looks at the differences in dose rates used, whereas in the production animal sector, they're bound by licensed dose rates, and you usually have a fairly homologous population size. Interestingly, this report does not publish antibiotic use data for horses in the UK, and there actually isn't a large database that does record that. Each of the metrics used to record usage will have its own pros and cons, and frustratingly, there is no universally accepted metric, which makes comparisons quite difficult. Then to add to the confusion, in people, they use a 
totally different metric altogether, um, DDD, so defined daily dose per 1,000, which is the number of people per 1,000 taking antibiotics on a given day. So what did your study aim to look at? So we wanted to build on previous work um, done by Tim Mayer. This was published a few years ago in Equine Veterinary Education. They looked at um, some UK-based practices over a five-year period. They found an encouraging reduction in antibiotic usage, so over a 50% reduction over this five-year period. They looked at the total weight of antibiotics used. Um, They didn't go into the kind of MIGS per kg or the defined daily dose. And this is something that we wanted to explore. We wanted to make a user-friendly way for practices to generate their own annual reports using their practice management software. We aimed to record antibiotic usage over a 10-year period using dose-based metrics. So milligrams per kilogram, and then the defined daily dose metrics I talked about earlier. Within this, we also wanted to document the usage of the highest priority, critically important antimicrobials. As the saying goes, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And we felt that an easy way of recording use in clinical practice was a really important step in tackling the wider problem of antimicrobial resistance. Could you talk us through how you set up the database you use to collect the information from your 14 equine practices? So we approached Brian Witt at Eclipse Veterinary Software, who's one of the co-authors on this paper, and we asked him to create a means to generate an antibiotic usage report using the existing software. And he was able to kind of implement that. I won't go into the details here. It is all it is all in the manuscript, but it essentially relies on the user to tell the computer system which products for sale are antibiotics and then which class they belong to. And then you have to input the weight of antibiotic per sales unit. So say for a sachet of TMPS, which has, you know, 15 grams of antibiotic and you need to tell the system that that's how much it is per sachet sold. The system will also have the weight of horses seen by each practice, which allows the software to calculate the milligram per kilogram metric. This system is now built into the software so that all practices using Eclipse can access it. You can run this report over any set time period. Um, So you can do it year by year, or you can do it over larger or smaller chunks. And you can look at individual cost centers within your practice. So you could break it down by ambulatory versus hospital. um, Although we did a more global kind of all sales per practice. So how did you recruit the veterinary practices and what did you ask them to do? We approached all of the UK-based equine practices that were already using Eclipse Veterinary Software and we invited them to collaborate. For practices that were interested, we provided them with video instructions on how to set up the software and generate the antibiotic usage reports. And then we asked them to run reports for each year going back to 2012, so 10 years in total. And then we asked them to send the reports over to us for inclusion in the study. That sounds like quite a lot of work. What kind of practices did you manage to recruit and how many? 
We had a great response. We ended up getting 13 other practices and then our own clinic at Donington Grove. So we had a total of 14 practices. Six of these did first opinion only work and then eight had additional referral hospital facilities. Within the first opinion practices, five out of the six also had clinic facilities. We had a pretty good geographical spread across the UK, which was great and really reflects, you know, usage across across um you know england scotland and wales so what did you manage to record by way of antibiotic usage so we looked at systemic preparations only and that's kind of in line with other recording guidelines and other species the final report generated gives you each antibiotic product that you've used over the specified time period in total weight and then it breaks down into milligrams per kilogram Then it will group them according to the different antibiotic categories and then it will give you an overall number as well. So the total, the total weight and the total milligrams per kilogram. For the purposes of the study, we recorded categories rather than individual antibiotic products. We also recorded total use and then within that we looked at the high priority, critically important antibiotics as well. We went on to manually calculate the defined daily dose vet per animal and then the defined daily dose per 1,000 metrics as well. To do this, we used the BEVA formulary. So this is a little bit tricky as we have a lot of different dose ranges in equine practice. So we selected the middle of each range to, to calculate these defined daily doses. Okay, so you've, you've mentioned quite a few different metrics that you've analysed. How did you find that these metrics compared to one another based on accuracy? It's actually really difficult to identify the kind of best or the most accurate way of reporting the antibiotic usage. When we look at the mass-based metrics, the, the milligram per kilogram is arguably better than the total weight as you take into account the weight of the horse and the number of horses that you treat. But then you have a problem because antibiotics that have higher dose rates will really skew your results. And in equine, we mainly use TMPS, which is great. It's an excellent first-line choice, reflects responsible antibiotic usage, but it has a high dose rate, so 30 milligrams per kilogram, which when you compare to, say, Ceftiofur, it's two milligrams per kilogram. So just by switching everything from TMPS to Ceftiofur, you could manipulate the results and show a significant improvement in your overall numbers. And we thought that it's really critical that we don't incentivize the use of these highest priority, critically important antibiotics. The DDD vet per animal per year, so what they use in companion animals, does correct for this. You're looking at actual doses of a set antibiotic. However, the calculation of of each dose rate does not always reflect the licensed dose rate, unlike in farm animals. And, you know, even the European Medicines Agency recognises that these values are often a compromise. In equine practice, we do use a lot of products off-label, and as I mentioned, a lot have variable dose rates, so that can make it a little bit more challenging. I would say that in terms of comparing between industries and adjusting for the high use of TMPS in equine practice, the defined daily dose metrics are preferable. And did you find the same trend as Tim Mayer's paper over the 10-year period that you looked at? for all antibiotics or certain antibiotics? 
So he had an overall 50% decrease, which was, you know, really, really encouraging. We, as we recruited more practices into our study, the total weight of um, antibiotics seemed to increase because not all practices were recording as reliably in the earlier years. So that kind of skewed our total weight of antibiotics. When we looked at the milligram per kilogram metric, we showed a 23% decrease. So from 60 milligrams per kilogram down to 46 milligrams per kilogram over the study period. This allowed us to draw comparison with the food animal sector. They currently sit at about 30 milligrams per kilogram. They've managed to come down from over 60 milligrams per kilogram over the last decade, which has been pretty impressive. Companion animals are a little bit variable. So in 2021, um, the reported usage was 65 milligrams per kilogram for dogs, which is quite high, and then 33 milligrams per kilogram for cats. But this is really skewed by a high use of long-acting antibiotic injections in cats. When we then looked at the defined daily dose metrics to adjust for these, um, we actually compare pretty favorably to companion animals. We were down at 1.6 defined daily doses per horse per year. Dogs were up at three and cats were 2.4. So that defined daily dose is the average number of days that each dog or cat or horse has received an antibiotic through the year. For production animals, the report published by the VMD doesn't look at defined daily doses at the moment. So it's hard to kind of draw comparisons on that metric. Okay. Um, And what limitations did you experience through this study? Well, the very first hurdle was making sure that all of the data were correct. As we relied on individual practices to identify all of the antibiotic preparations they were using or had used over the 10-year period, and then to input the concentrations of each antibiotic to the software. There were some errors in, you know, how the concentrations were recorded, and there were some omissions, which we checked all the data manually and then went back to practices to prompt them to maybe include certain classes that were missed out um, and we corrected any discrepancies in um, how the concentrations had been recorded. We could also only monitor sales of antibiotic. We couldn't include written prescriptions in this study and of course we couldn't control whether or not the horse actually consumed the antibiotic. We also couldn't identify why the antibiotics were being prescribed, which makes it a little bit more challenging to kind of look at the behavioural aspects of antibiotic prescribing. And there are studies that have looked at this, but it relies on looking at individual patient records, which is a lot more time consuming. And we wanted to make it quite user friendly and, and fairly quick to do. Finally, not all horses seen had a recorded weight, and that was mainly those seen in a kind of ambulatory setting. The average weights that we used were calculated from horses that had a weight recorded. If a practice recorded less than 10 weights in a year, an average weight of 500 kilograms was used. So that could have skewed the data a little bit. Okay. So is this data collection system available to anybody in practice? Or um, if you're interested, how can you access it? So at the moment, this is currently available to all practices that use Eclipse veterinary software. Um, On the 
paper as a supplementary item, we have included the video instructions that we sent to the practices. And this, the article is open access, so anyone can, can go on and look at those instructions or just drop us an email. I think Bruce is on there as the corresponding author, but we'd be absolutely happy to assist getting practices set up. And we are trying to push to get this rolled out into other practice management software systems. I think it's just so, so important that we're able to record usage in an, an easy way to help us get better at managing the problem of resistance. Fantastic. So it would really help the practices audit their own antibiotic usage. Absolutely. And then identify areas that, that you know can be improved. And sometimes I think just a simple process of auditing something is enough to you know, provide a catalyst for change and improvement in these situations. That sounds like a really valuable tool um, to come out of this paper. So thanks for talking us through this, Rose. And um, thank you for yeah, all your work that you've done into this. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. And secondly, Nicola Lynch is an equine surgeon working at Vianova in Belgium. Nicola will talk us through her recent study titled Desmitis of the Accessory Ligament of the Deep Digital Flexor Tendon in the Forelimb, a retrospective case study of 91 horses. Nicola, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast this month to talk about your recent paper in EVJ on desmitis of the check ligament. Um, based on your introduction, what did you know or what do we know in the literature about check ligament injuries before this review was undertaken? Yes, thanks, Rhiannon. So I guess before we undertook this study, there were really three main papers that looked at check ligament injuries in horses and particularly in the forelimbs. And what we found was that mainly the prognosis had a very wide range. Um, and in 93, a paper by Vandenbelt et al., had a prognosis of only 18% of horses returning to work. And, and this was quite different to Sue Dyson's paper in 91, where 75% of horses were able to return to work. So what we also knew from what was available uh, in books and also in the literature was that this was an injury that affected middle-aged and older horses. And it seemed that ponies and native breeds were predisposed as well, it appeared that the age of the horse and also the chronicity of the lesion were associated with a poor outcome. But because of the low paper or the low number of horses in the previous paper, it hadn't really been shown statistically. So what were your aims and, um, and objectives in this paper? So our clinical impression um, has always been that the outcome for check ligament injuries is not as bleak as STFT or DDFT injuries, and, and certainly not as bad as that that was reported by Vandenbelt et al. Um, so our aim was essentially to get a, a better handle on the prognosis for this injury in, in a larger population of horses. So in the previous studies, um, they had a maximum of 30 horses. And we really wanted to get uh, quite a big number of cases so we could see if there was any statistically significant uh, factor that affected their ability to return to work. We also wanted to determine if there was any treatment that was associated with a better outcome in our um, cases. 
And then really based on the previous work that was done, we hypothesized that the presence of lameness, the severity of the lesion when assessed ultrasonographically, and also the chronicity of the injury would influence their ability to return to work. So how did you go about collecting the data about the horse and the injury? And what categories um, were you aiming to look at? Um, so essentially, this was a retrospective study. So all our data was collected from clinical records uh, from four hospitals. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to collaborate with authors from Rossdale's, Lambourne Equine and Lippook Hospital as well. And this was necessary in order for us to get sufficient numbers for this study. We gathered all the general information relating to the horse, including their sex, age, breed, their use. And then the data regarding the injury was really related to the presence or absence of lameness, any findings on palpation, but particularly any heat, pain or swelling in association with the check ligament, and also the duration of lameness or in the horses that weren't lame, the duration of clinical signs. And to be considered for inclusion in the study, all of the horses had to have ultrasound images that were available for review. So what did you focus on when looking at the ultrasound images? We looked at several features on the ultrasound scan and initially we started just by categorising the type of lesion that was present. And by that we meant whether it was a focal lesion just affecting a portion of the ligament or slightly more commonly in our population generalised lesions that affected a larger more diffuse portion of the ligament. With the focal lesions, we then further divided these into those that affected the proximal, mid and distal third. And then we attempted to grade the severity of the injury. Now, due to the retrospective nature and our inability to be able to alter the images, the only consistent way that we could do this was to look at lesion echogenicity. And essentially, we utilised or transferred uh, the mild, moderate and severe grading system that's already commonly used for flexor tendons. And we applied that to the images in our study. We then also looked for the presence of other lesions, particularly any injury in the SDFT, DDFT and suspensory ligament. And then in some horses, we also had additional ultrasound views, particularly the oblique view from the palmolateral aspect of the limb. And then also some non-weight-bearing views. And again, in a very low number of cases, we looked at the presence of Doppler. But we ended up not including this in the study because it was only in a very small proportion of the cases. Okay. And you also looked at follow-up information. So how did you obtain this? So predominantly, we were able uh, to obtain all our follow-up information from the clinical records. And for us to be satisfied with the information that was available in the records, it had to include information on subsequent examinations, so repeat lameness assessment, and some detail on whether or not the horse had returned to work. Unfortunately, we weren't able to identify in enough cases the level of work they were able to return to. If there wasn't enough detail or any detail in the clinical records, our next step uh, was to obtain telephone follow-up, either from the owner or the trainer. And we specifically inquired about return to work, return to soundness, duration of convalescence, um, and the therapy that was utilised if it wasn't available in the clinical records. If both those methods were unsuccessful, we then attempted to get follow-up from either competition or race records. 
Um, and this was very easy for horses who uh, competed in racing or in FEI or British eventing competitions. But of course, it was more difficult uh, for some other competition bodies. OK, so when looking at all your results, what did you discover about the signalment of horses suffering from these injuries? And did this agree with the previous literature you were discussing in the beginning? Yes. So similar to previous studies, we found that this injury tended to affect middle aged to older horses. And actually, 77 of the 91 horses in our study were greater than 10 when they presented with this injury. And this is very similar to to previous work. We also found that the majority of horses used in this study were general purpose horses. And again, that's previously been reported although we did have a larger number of eventing horses um, in our population, and this injury has not been previously reported in them. And when you analysed the ultrasound images, what did you find? Um, were ultrasound abnormalities linked to return to athletic function, by any chance? So um, the only ultrasound factor that was associated with a return to function uh, was the presence of adhesions. We didn't see a link between the presence of SDFT or DDFT pathology and outcome. And this was surprising as in the Dyson paper from 91, no horse with an additional um, soft tissue injury was able to return to work. But apart from adhesions, we actually found no effect of the location, the type of lesion, or even the severity of the lesion based on our echogenicity, echogenicity grading on their ability to return to work. So you mentioned that adhesion formation between the check ligament and the SDFT was significantly associated with a poor outcome. Did you find that this adhesion formation was more common in a particular subset of horses, um, for example, those that had recurrent lameness or those that had higher grade ultrasonographic abnormalities? Um, and are there any particular tips you can give us on how to identify these adhesions ultrasonographically? Yes, so we didn't find any specific signalment or horse features that predispose them to adhesion formation, although over half the horses with adhesions were general purpose riding horses. The horses that had adhesions, however, all were lame at presentation, and certainly in our population, a third of the horses actually were sound on initial examination. Also, a third of the horses that had adhesions did have recurrence of the of the injury within the follow-up period. So I think if you are presented with a horse with recurrent injury or recurrent lameness, it, it's certainly useful to assess for the presence of adhesions. And what we found was that ultrasonographically, the oblique ultrasound view, which is obtained from the lateral window, best identified these adhesions. And this can easily be done in the weight-bearing limb. Generally, the appearance of these adhesions is that you have a, a loss of the definition either between the check ligament and the DDFT or between a check ligament and the SDFT. And oftentimes the SDFT or the check ligament is often so enlarged it can wrap around the edges of the SDFT and DDFT. So it's important just to assess um, for the definition and the margins of each tendon. And What's a little bit difficult is that normally there are fibres that run from the check ligament to the SDFT. And I think particularly in the oblique ultrasound sound view, these can become more visible. 
And if you're not used to assessing these cases or looking at the ultrasound images in normal horses, it's easy to misdiagnose these as adhesions. And although in our series it wasn't performed consistently, I think non-weight-bearing views where you flex and extend the fetlock joint can sometimes give you an idea of whether or not there's adhesion formation. And again, it's reported, although not seen in our population, if you have very severe adhesions uh, from the check ligament, either the STFT or DDFT, you can develop a flexural deformity of the fetlock joint. So when you were looking at outcome information, what significant factors did you found did you find influence this? Um, so the persistence of lameness was the most significant factor that influenced the outcome. And of course, lameness is often a reason for horse not horses not being able to return to work. But in our population, uh, only 13% of the horses that were lame at follow-up uh, returned to work whereas 86% of horses that were sound did return to work. We did see an improved outcome in the horses that were sound on initial presentation with this injury, although this was not statistically significant. And I think it's more likely that the persistence of lameness influenced the outcome rather than horses being free from lameness on presentation. But aside from this, it was really only the presence of adhesions that affected their ability to return to work. So by far, the majority of your cases um, were unilateral and only a low number suffered from concurrent soft tissue pathologies. So what features of the check ligament do you think predispose the horse to a unilateral lameness, which just affects the check ligament? So I think we know that degenerative ageing changes take place, particularly in the check ligaments of the forelimb of horses. And you get a decrease in the amount of fibrillar collagen, but also the number of large collagen fibrils in these older horses. And there's actually been some studies that have shown that failure forces of check ligaments are significantly lower in older horses than in younger horses. And you get fibrillar rupture at about half the forces that you do in younger horses. But I don't have a rational explanation and no explanation became evident in our study as to why we saw this as a unilateral injury, as logically these changes should be seen in both limbs. And I think you saw more of these injuries in jumpers of a higher age. Why do you think that they were predisposed? Yes, so I think, as I've already said, the age with age, we get degenerative changes in the ligament. But I think we see this commonly in lower level or general purpose horses. But certainly in jumpers, the check ligament is loaded during when they land over fence, but also during the late stance phase or when they extend um, the digital joints. So I think it's just the load when they land over a fence and the carpus is in hyperextension as to why we see it in a higher, higher number of jumpers. You also looked into treatment strategies for this injury um, and I thought it was interesting that interventional therapies had no effect on the return to athletic soundness. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I think there's probably um, two aspects to this. I think we had relatively few horses in our population that had interventional treatments and I think Although the logistic regression analysis should account for this, but it's possible that the low numbers that were treated with interventional therapy um, has not shown a great difference. 
But I think in reality, this injury responds well um, to rest and rehabilitation. And certainly horses that have been box rested seem to have a, a good outcome. And so there's likely no need for interventional treatment. I think if we looked at our population of horses in the study, a large number had diffuse or generalized lesions, which were not amenable to injection um, with biologics, for example. And I think, as is the case with many other injuries, uh, there's not really a strong body of evidence to, to support the use of interventional treatments. What did you find were the main limitations of the study? Yes, so I think the main limitation of the study is related to its retrospective nature. And so in some horses, we were missing data and we could only assess the ultrasound images that were available to us. So it will be nice in future studies if we were able to measure ligament size, cross-sectional area of the lesion, and also get information in, in terms of a standard rehabilitation program and have that information available for vets. I think as well, almost all the lamenesses in our case series were evaluated subjectively. And in some cases, especially with follow-up, we were limited to the owner or trainer recollection of them returning to soundness. Um, so it's definitely possible that low-grade lameness could have been missed in the follow-up period. And has this data influenced the clinical advice you give um, your colleagues or owners on these cases? I think this data um, reinforces uh, our feeling or our clinical impression that there is a good or favorable prognosis following check ligament injuries. And I think what's really encouraging is that certainly for first time injuries uh, and in the majority of cases that with appropriate rest and rehabilitation, it's likely that no further treatment will be required. And what's your take home message? I think two, um, but probably the first would be try and obtain the oblique ultrasound images. It can certainly give you a lot more information and that the prognosis for check ligament injuries is, is generally good. Great. Well, thank you for talking us through the study. It's a condition that nearly all equine clinicians will be coming across. Um, so that's really useful um, to hear results from such a large number. So thank you for that, Nicola. Thank you, Ian. Thanks again for listening and please join us for the February episode. 